Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome, everybody. We are here at the Boston University studios. Gary, good to see you. Hey, Mike. Good to see you, too. Uh, Lots in the news. And we've got a great guest uh, coming up with Dave Sampson, who's led the public affairs function at at Chevron for like 16 years. He's like the Lou Gehrig of CCOs. How many people are that long in the job, right? Exactly. And and then on top of it, like you, former head of Page. That's right. We'll talk to him about all things energy, all things changing in the world of CCOs. Anyway, one of the things that clearly has been overwhelming the news of late is the coronavirus. But what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about uh, at least the charges, the claims around politicization of the coronavirus. The president was down at a political rally just end of last week in South Carolina. He essentially said coronavirus was a little bit of a hoax Mm -hmm. perpetuated by Democrats. Right. And in fact, specifically, he said the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. They tried the impeachment hoax. This is their their new hoax. And then Don Jr. over the weekend doubled down, appearing on Fox, said for them to try and take a pandemic and seemingly hope that it comes here and kills millions of people so they could end Donald Trump's streak of winning is a new level of sickness. What are they thinking? Yeah, I, I th- this is another example that Everything is political to this administration. Even Vice President Pence backed up to Don Jr., the awful quote that Democrats want millions to die from this. He would not refute it on the Mm. Sunday shows, you know, the Sunday morning talk shows. It's like any organization, Mike. You know, when your goals at the beginning are skewed or wrong or corrupt, this is the first real test of a crisis not of his own creation. Right. Meaning the president. This is a chance to be presidential. Mm -hmm. It's a chance to lead and inform. They've cut off access to the scientists. All things have to come through Pence. It's not really clear who's in charge. They had gotten rid of their pandemic experts. Mm -hmm. So all of the calculations years ago, all of the calculations seem to be political rather than protecting you and I and other Americans Mm -hmm. from this virus and doing what's right. And that is the result of a corrupt, in the sense of wrong-headed of that word, goal for this organization, which yeah, is about yeah. making the president happy and getting him reelected. Yeah. Now, it was interesting in the press conference around the coronavirus, the president introducing uh, the vice president right. as being in charge. It seemed like they had him boxed in a little bit and he was avoiding getting yeah. into the, the hoax pointing. But also there, the disturbing challenge in my mind was here he puts Mike Pence in charge of this effort to make sure that we're all safe from the coronavirus. Then there's a question from the gaggle of reporters about, well, what's the role for the head of HHS, who originally had been told that he was in charge? And the president, like, turned around, left, and kind of Pence and and, and the HHS secretary sitting there looking at each (laughs) other. You know, uh, not to be political here, I mean, the, the whole 
thing is there's an opportunity to be presidential. There's an opportunity to have an organized face of how you're going to structure both communications as well as dealing with the potential of this pandemic from a communication standpoint, not from a political standpoint. They missed a number of steps here. Yeah, they did. And and even the only thing I would add is where is the points of trust? In other words, that's what the country is looking for. And because this administration has a record of not being straight Mm -hmm. on some important issues, people don't know who to trust. So, for example, Pence is on the the Sunday morning shows. The question is about how many people have been tested in the United States because there's a shortage of test kits that are available here. He resorts to political talking points that 47,000 people have been screened. Screening means, Mike, how you feeling? Do you mm-hmm. have a temperature? Yeah. That's not a test. All right. That kind of political talking point strategy, mm-hmm. gamesmanship, whatever it is, mm-hmm. has to go away. And they, from a communication standpoint, they right. have to get back to building trust. Right. The other element around kind of the outbreak of the coronavirus is we may think of this as a health crisis. It clearly has become something of an economic crisis right. as well. S and P. 500 was down 11.5% mm. last week. And then uh, it was probably uh, Wall Street's worst week in like a dozen years. It erased mm. like $6 trillion worth of, of wealth in the marketplace. We've also seen a lot of closings. I mean, general vicinity where this first took place is really, you know, ground to a halt. Right. And there's no business, no travel, no movement. But now we've got over 800 cases in South Korea, hundreds of cases in Iran and Italy. Uh, Switzerland has has banned meetings and events of people more than a thousand. The Louvre in Paris decided they're going to close for some period of time. They closed on Sunday. Disneyland Tokyo, Universal Studios uh, Japan are closed. One of the world's premier energy industry events, uh, Sarah Week, scheduled to take place uh, March 9th through 13th in Houston, Texas, has been canceled. Yeah, big, big conference. Uh, So while the market was down, also transportation shares were down more significantly. All three major airlines, American, United, Delta. So the overall market was down by 11.5%. They're down by more than 20%. Right. There's been slippage in other categories as well. Are the markets overreacting? I, you know, I don't think so. I, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. And, and I'll, I'll bring this back to communications in a minute. I think there was some air in the market to begin with. Yeah. And so a, a course correction, course correction, and probably not that I'm an expert, and mm-hmm. certainly my mm-hmm. my bank account would show that I'm not. <laughs> but I think there was some error there. But everything I read and everything I hear from our colleagues in business says that this is having significant impact across mm-hmm. supply chains, customer orders, conferences. Uh, Becky Edwards from Schneider Electric talked yeah. to last week. They've invested a lot of money in a lot of these trade shows, and those are being canceled. I have the feeling that the markets, maybe the overcorrection is due to other things, Mm -hmm. but I don't think the markets are overreacting to this and that they will bounce back quickly Mm -hmm. if uh, this looks like it's being contained. I think this is a fairly rational reaction. Mm -hmm. I wanted to mention on this one, too, if you're not standing up and you're in a big global company right now, you're a crisis center, boy, you better get moving on it because there's so many tentacles of this thing, whether it's employee travel, employee health, to customer relationships, to supply chain issues, to inventory, to public policy issues. How can we help? Yeah, A lot of tentacles on this and, and yeah. companies really need to be focused right now. And the thing that's much different, I think, than the 
something like this happened 20 years ago, is so many more of our companies are global in orientation. Yes, yes. So it used to be that commodities, you would say, oh, that's where you go you right. know, when, when there's a crisis in terms of investments and whatnot. What we saw, that at least last week, is they also got mm. hit and got hit as severely as the general market. And in large reason was that so many of these players that are working in commodities are working on a global platform. They've got supply chains yes. that are complex and are hitting into many, many countries. And I, one other thing I want to mention, too, on from a communication standpoint is this is not a marketing opportunity. No. So I, I read this morning uh, on Bloomberg Technology column, a company in China called JD.com has put out a blog uh, sort of touting they're, they're a retailer drone and autonomous delivery business. <laughs> and in a blog, they said the outbreak of COVID-19, another name for coronavirus, uh-huh. is indeed a great catalyst to put these technologies under the spotlight. There you, know, you this go. This is a public blog. No. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. If you're even yeah. thinking about that, just go have lunch or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> We've talked a lot about crises, and we've talked a lot about kind of self-made crises in the past where businesses haven't operated uh, on the up and up. Wall Street Journal last week did a story on American Express where apparently American Express employees misled and kind of coerced scores of small business owners into signing up for cards. One Ohio small business owner reported receiving a $250 bill for a card that he couldn't remember agreeing to Mm. sign up for. Employees who talked to the journal said the aggressive practices around trying to really pressure small businesses to take these cards and sometimes misrepresenting Mm -hmm. what this was all about actually came right after Costco had sort of cut loose of their relationship with Amex Amex back in 2015. So there was a big drive. And part of the reason for the big drive is that small business accounts like drive about 30% of Amex's revenue. So this can be, you know, big money. Now, the spokesperson for Amex in response to the Wall Street Journal report said that, well, this is really a relatively small piece of the business, approximately 0.25% of the mm-hmm. 65 million total cards that American Express issued in the time period 2014 to 2019, and that what these people were actually doing was inconsistent with our sales policy, our sales policies, and that uh, you know they've got rigorous, multi-layered monitoring mm. and independent risk management processes in place. And it goes on and it says, we do not tolerate any m- misconduct. Now, I get it. They're using numbers. 0.25%, by the way, amounts to 162,500 wow. uh, cards. So, Gary, you and I both face <laughs> business challenges and crises as CCOs and as consultants. Was the American Express response adequate? Well, I would say, you know, look, we're, we're playing Monday morning. Yep quarterback here. But on its face, Amex has a great communications team and Mike O'Neill is uh, is amazing. Small businesses are so important and integral to the Amex brand. Mm -hmm. I mean, Small Business Saturday, it sounds like they're taking it seriously, but the language is just so thick and off-putting and corporate, and and I hate it. Yeah. Using numbers to minimize, Mm -hmm. in this case, I think is Mm wrongheaded. It's important in a crisis or in an issue like this to frame Mm -hmm. how big an issue it is, but it can't be a central talking point. You're going to find out what happened, and you're going to fix it. And let me tell you a few things that we're doing right now 
That's it. Small businesses are the backbone of this country. We want to do everything we can to help them not create this kind of pressure, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of thing, plain, human, empathetic. Absolutely. Is I couldn't agree with you more. Where we go. Now I want to take us to the next topic, oh which, which for me is, is the most fun of all. So Major League Baseball, spring training is here. Hope springs eternal it for is. all of these baseball clubs. The seasons actually start in March 26th. Now, the season begins with this cloud. Yes. Given the Astros sign-stealing scandal, they stole signs using a camera system 2017, 2018. For our listeners, 2017, they actually won the World Series. They even went to the World Series this past year. Right. Albeit they did not win. Uh, The Nationals, of course, won. But that was after beating Tampa Bay and our beloved New York Yankees. But they Mm. had said they found no evidence uh, from 2019. They did take action against the GM and against the manager. They're suspended from doing anything with Major League Baseball for a year. The Astros had to pay a $5 million fine. They had to forfeit their first and second round draft choices for this year and next. Also, the guy who supposedly masterminded this was Alex Cora, who had since become manager of the Red Sox. So the Red Sox and he parted ways. And also Carlos Beltran, who's a former Yankee, but was, played for the Astros. But played for the Astros during these cheating, years. Yeah. And it just fairly recently before all this news came out, and he was specifically, he was the one player that was specifically mentioned in the report, yeah. had gotten a job as the manager of the Mets, a job that he now will never do. Yes. Were the penalties severe enough? Should players have been taken to task? And should championships have been vacated? Well, I think, the you know, from a crisis management standpoint, I, I think the way to look at this, I, I think the answer to all of those things is no. And championships, yes. Yeah. Major League Baseball and the commissioner, Rob Manfred, agreed to give the players immunity if they would come in because they wouldn't get any cooperation on testimony, I guess is the best way to put it, on it. He gave immunity to the the players when they came in. This was, even though the report, the Major League Baseball report said this was a player-driven cheating system. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the players get no punishment has really not set well with fans and Mm -hmm. with other teams and like you and I, Mm -hmm. Yankee fans, I'd say, hey, take that championship away. It happens in other sports when people are caught cheating. Certainly my sport of cycling, you know, the, Mm -hmm. you know, Lance Armstrong had his Tour Mm -hmm. de France is taken away. But I think it was in the management Mm -hmm. of the crisis in which the commissioner didn't want to take on the players Mm -hmm. and the Players Association, Mm -hmm. the Players Union, and gave this immunity I think that was the mistake from which he could not recover, and therefore he wasn't able to give out punishment to the people who drove this. Now, I also heard a a radical idea, radical ideas. So in in football, take another sport. Everybody tries in any sport to get an edge, right? And one of the things that happens in football, because I played it in in high school, is you watch film and you look for cues. You know, if the quarterback pats his head, you think, oh, he's going to go to the right. Right. You know, and you look for those kinds of cues. How is this any different from that? Should we just say everybody should do it? Well, number one, it's explicitly forbid, right. forbidden in the rules of the league. So that's up to the league, Mike, now yeah. to decide. How is technology to be used in this game? And look, if everybody had the same access in their dugouts, that would be a different story. Same yeah. access to the technology, the video, and the signs, but they didn't. And other yeah. teams didn't do it. They broke a rule and they took advantage. 
You know, they should when, have to pay for it. it. Right, and they should have to pay for it. And when you hit a home walk-off home run off of Raldis Chapman, the Yankee relief pitcher who throws over 100 miles an hour. Not that we have any grudges Yeah, exactly. Here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I think maybe you know something's coming, but uh, <laughs> what pitch is coming. But anyway, not because I'm a Yankee fan, but integrity of the game. The b- baseball yeah. banned Pete Rose for life yeah. for betting on baseball. Yeah. Integrity of the game. Yeah. This certainly gets at the heart of the integrity of the game. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about technology, and some people talk about Moneyball and how that's influenced the game. And one of the things that came out of Moneyball was strategy during the middle of the game. And one of the rules changes gets at this a little bit, but it gets at it because they think it's wasting a lot of time. And that is now when a relief pitcher is used, beginning in 2020, the relief pitcher will have to pitch to at least three batters. So sometimes there was that sense, oh, a lefty's coming up, I'm going to get my righty in. If a righty's coming up, I'm going to get a lefty pitcher in. And you literally have guys come in and pitch to one or two batters. And of course, they get time to warm up and whatnot. So how do you think this is going to change the game? And then if you're listening on the radio, this pitching change is brought to you by, you know, and it goes on and on and on and there's no action, right? You know, it just, so uh, peace. I'm with speeding up the game. I think there would be other ways to do it, Mike. I think Major League Baseball has to look at the heart of the issue, which is television revenue and maybe taking a little bit less for some of the breaks that you get from television. Football is more of an issue there as well, too. I just think the way you mess, if you start messing with the game Mm -hmm. on what you can and cannot do, it's fundamentally a different game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, my yeah. opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think so, too. So last thing here. Yeah. So, so last year, this time, we made predictions. Oh, About no. how many yes. games here we go. would our beloved New York Yankees, <laughs> as we sit here in the shadows of Fenway, how many games would they win? And you um, won. Okay. I, 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 hit, I hit it on the nose, and I had no earthly idea. In fact, yeah. we're almost in the same spot as we were last year in the yes. sense that the Yankees had lots of injuries. Exactly. So we start off now. You've got Jim Paxton coming back from back surgery back, maybe yeah. in three months. You've got Luis Severino. They found out now he's got to have – he Tommy just had John. Tommy John surgery this past week. Aaron Hicks is coming yeah. back from Tommy John surgery on his throwing arm, a great outfielder. Uh, jean Carl. Stanton has a strained calf and yeah. they think he won't start Make opening in, day. In a, on opening day. And then Aaron Judge has been complaining about pain in his shoulder. Yeah. So, so what's your prediction? I, look, can I just say that I'm going to predict they're going to win more games than the Red Sox? Is that good enough? I, I think that's probably good. <laughs> I'll take that. I, I'll say... I, actually, I would I would even take it better if it were they're going to win more games than the Astros. The oh, Red that Sox. would be, yes, yes. But I, And I say both. I would say both. I'm going to say, like, they're still stacked, yeah. you know, and they've got a lot of, a good farm system. I'm going to say 101 games. Okay. And I'm going to say 103 again. Oh, excellent. So okay. we'll stay on that. It's yeah. still, still a little different. But get, we'll, we'll get a beer down here at Fenway one of these nights to there you uh, go. celebrate. There you go. Yeah. One last thing before we go on to our guest, an icon in global business, someone who I know is near and dear to you, who you've worked with, the former chairman and CEO of, of GE, Jack Welsh, just recently passed. Comments? Yeah. Jack hired me into GE to help with some issues they had around environmental performance and Hudson River. And so I worked with him right through the Honeywell deal, Mm -hmm. um, which he retired after that. So about two and a half, three years. And uh, the guy really revolutionized corporate communications. Mm -hmm. He was blunt. He was profane. 
but he was crystal clear. He was accessible. He was accessible, crystal clear in what he wanted you to hear and what he wanted you to do. And working with Joyce Hergenhan, Mm. who was the CCO for Jack for most of his years, and Bill Lane, the late, great Bill Lane, his speechwriter, I think changed the way CEOs talk about their companies. And the great thing about Jack was he could talk to anybody Anywhere, anytime. Union members, presidents, kings. Yeah, the personal touch. He, it was, you know, he was a blue collar guy through and through. You know, short little guy and, and with a stutter and a, and a Boston accent. But man, he could communicate. It permeated that company. You felt like you personally worked for Jack Welch. So I uh, learned a lot from him, just on how to make things simple. Mm-hmm. I also felt like if Jack stopped yelling at me, it meant that he didn't care anymore, right? <laughs> so I was always happy that he was yelling at me. It meant that he still thought I had some, some potential, but uh, sad day at GE. Yeah. Very sad day. Yeah, yeah. Well, both an active thinker and uh, a much-heralded CEO. Absolutely. Our guest today on The Crux is the new vice chairman of corporate affairs at the world's biggest PR firm, Edelman, and that person is Dave Sampson. Dave is the recently retired, although as we talk, you're still doing a little work for Chevron, CCO of Chevron, one of the world's largest and most important energy companies. Dave has a huge remit at Chevron, corporate and digital communications, corporate marketing and branding, research and analytics, as well as its social media properties. And before Chevron, Dave did turns on in-house teams at IBM, Oracle, and Levi Strauss. Uh, He is, of course, the former chairman of the Page Society and inductee of the Page and PR Week Halls of Fame. Dave, welcome to the crux. Good morning. So you're in the middle of your transition now from Chevron to Edelman, and Edelman uh, put out an announcement last week about your new role. Tell us uh, what you're going to be doing at Edelman. Sure. I think if you think about Edelman, my career is really coming full circle. I think, as you may know, I started in a small boutique agency in Denver almost four decades ago, which is hard for me to believe. Um, (laughs) It's a little scary, but spent the middle part of my career as a partner at Kenship. And, uh, and now I'm joining Edelman. I couldn't be more excited, more excited about the company that I'm joining and more excited about the role that I uh, hope to, to occupy there. And, you know, if you think about what my job is, I think in its simplest sense, it's really to bring all that Edelman has to offer to bear on behalf of its clients. So I'll be trying to bring my years of experience, particularly on the corporate side, together with the, the tremendous talent that exists across the Edelman network. And our aim is to really help our clients take full advantage of our portfolio of corporate affairs offerings, everything from employee engagement to reputation management to crisis and financial communications and public affairs, and really help 
our clients deal with what is increasingly a complex world and uh, help them figure out how they can succeed and thrive in any environment. And so that's that's the remit that I see that I will have at, at Edelman. You know, when I was doing the research for this interview, I didn't know that you had worked in an agency. I remember the his first agency. Oh, is that right? In Denver, yeah. What was the name of the agency? Uh, well, at the time when I started there, it was called Intercom. It later became MGA Communications. It was largely focused on the extractive industry okay. and the and the entertainment industry. So part of it was focused on the entertainment industry with a lot of clients out here in California. And um, a lot was in the extractive, particularly the mining sector. And, <laughs> they also had a pretty um, good research unit, if I remember, because I actually they did. hired that's them. A, that's exactly right. Wow, you got a better memory than I do. <laughs> That's exactly right. They were, you know, they, I think they were ahead of their times in many respects. They did a lot of research and everything they did was grounded in research on behalf of their clients. And they were also started a lot of the early public, you know, engagement efforts beca- on behalf of their mining clients. So going into communities and setting up local community engagement operations with the leaders of those communities. Okay. And, and that was happening back in uh in the early 80s. Well, that's that's quite a combination, mining and entertainment. Yeah. You, you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you could have, you know, you're so respected in the industry and everyone knows you and the quality of your work and your teams. Uh, you could have done pretty much anything. So why why an agency now for you? Well, I, like I said, I think it's, it's a great way to bring my career full circle. I see, you know, the best part of my career is yet to come. I that's great. Um, I believe it's going to happen inside Edelman, and uh, you know, and I and I think Edelman has what every agency aspires to or desires. It's got you know a rich history and enduring mm-hmm. culture that's that's really mm-hmm. rooted in entrepreneurism and client service. Uh, it's got scale. It plays on a global canvas, and it counts some of the world's most consequential and storied brands as its clients, and it's got uh, independence. And and because of independence, it can invest in its people, it can invest in its clients, and it can invest in intellectual property like the uh, trust barometer. And I think if you bring those three things together, culture, scale, and independence, what I like to say is that's Edelman's killer app. um, Because (laughs) no one else can really deliver on all those dimensions because they have Two, two of those things, but they don't have all three. All three. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I can't think of a, of, of a better place. Great way to look at it. Go and you know, and I have the utmost respect for for Richard and the incredible you know leadership team that he has built over the years. People stay with him, and, yeah. and that that says something about the culture. Yeah, and talking about your remit, you you talked about reputation, you talked about crisis, uh, working on complex uh, co- corporate issues. And in, in, in part of that is also helping to dimensionalize that trust barometer survey. Mm-hmm. Do you see uh, low trust as being one of the fundamental challenges facing business organizations today? Certainly, you know, if you look across every institution, whether it's business, government, NGOs, you know, trust is going down. Uh, I think the one good piece of information from the most current trust barometer that uh, was just presented at the at the World Economic Forum is that people now trust their employer more than anybody else. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, It's a safe haven for them in many respects. And 
Um, but I would say the stakes have never been higher for companies than they are today. The world in which um, businesses operate, you know, has never been more complex. And you see this certainly happening in the in the tech sector um, and in Silicon Valley. That companies now have to navigate at this nexus of global commerce um, and technology and geopolitics. And mm-hmm. uh, the geopolitical piece, I think, is the big unknown for a lot of them. You know, in my industry, that is not a new phenomenon, but for many businesses, it is. And then when you combine that with the the changing expectations from employees to society and the disruptions that are being caused by emerging technologies, that is a very complex three, four dimensional yeah. <laughs> chessboard on which they're trying to be successful. Completely. Yeah. Well, some years ago, you and I did some benchmarking together. And one of the things I was really impressed by is how you and your team work to be more predictive rather than just reactive. Tell us your thoughts about why that's important and how you, how you would recommend people going about that. Well, I mean, from my standpoint, it was uh, it was an imperative. If you if you look back, and I have the benefit of having sat in this job for 16 years, and so I tried to help lead the evolution of our function. And when I came in to Chevron back in 2004, I looked at a function that was really nothing more than corporate reporters. We were reactive. We were disconnected from the business. We were tactical. Our communications was one way. We measured our success by outputs as opposed to outcomes. And and in that world, our value to our internal business clients was low, and our level and degree of engagement with our stakeholders was low. And so that kind of looked like a path to extinction to me. (laughs) And so we became much more proactive. You know, we started to align ourselves and become a business-facing function within the company. We, you know, we became much more two-way in our engagement. We ramped up our engagement. Um, and, you know, we started to really drive advocacy through enhanced engagement with our stakeholders. And in that world, we moved from kind of a path to extinction to one of being valued business advisors. But a few years ago, <clears throat> with the advent of big data and stuff, you know, I saw an opportunity to become a much more predictive function and to use data you know, to drive the decisions we make to change the way in which we engage. And in that environment, we've become much more strategic. Our communications is now omnidirectional. Um, We can be much more pinpointed in how we reach and engage stakeholders. And, And in this world, we're now enabling business outcomes because we're able to get people to take action more favorable to our company's interest. And in that world, we become indispensable partners as opposed to just valued business advisors. So that's the the path that we've been on, and uh, and we've made good progress against it. Well, along those lines, you're in an industry, you know, oil and gas, extractive, I guess, as you you, you mentioned, Mm -hmm. increasingly getting pulled into political and social issues, and in this country and around the world, as we know, some there are efforts underway to for some big investment funds to divest from fossil fuels in response to some of the reporting on the science of climate change. And I, I just want to get a handle on how you've approached that kind of activism at Chevron, and maybe you can talk about how you're thinking about the transition that's probably inevitable to renewables sure. of some kind. Well, um, you know, first of all, 
I think it's important to look at, you know, our industry has always been looked at through a narrow lens. When I started with the company, it was through the lens of price and the price of yeah, right. you know, energy. And that was because oil was trading over $100 uh, a barrel and at one point got as high as $147 a barrel. And, that, and so price was the lens in which we were viewed. And, and now today, you know, the lens is, is largely climate. And so I think the, you know, the first thing we have to do is we have to recognize, and we have, that it's a real issue. But I think from our standpoint, what we want to have been trying to drive is, you know, is a more honest conversation on the issue, a more optimistic conversation on the issue, uh, and start to talk about, you know, how we're a part of the solution as opposed to the problem. And I, and I think we want, the way we've had to start that is by, you know, providing context to people. I mean, if you, if you think about the world today, you know, we have about 7.5 billion people on the planet, but only about a billion of those people enjoy the standard of living that we do, that the mm-hmm. three of us enjoy and, uh, and often take for granted. Another 2 to 3 billion are on their way to enjoying a better standard of living, but 3 billion still aren't there. Right. Um, they're a long way from it, and they're not going to enjoy what we enjoy in their lifetimes, likely. And so 3 billion people still burn biomass and, and animal right. dung for indoor heating and cooking. I mean, and so we have to go after that issue. And, you know, all people want the same thing, right? They want a better quality of life. They want a better quality of life for their kids. They want better education, better health care. And I think economic development underpins all of that. And economic development depends on, you know, affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner energy. And so that's energy. what we're... That's what we're focused on. And so, I mean, what we've been doing is we've, one, we're trying to reduce our own, the climate intensity of our operations around the world. We're investing in, in the use of renewables within our own operations. We, we have a technology ventures group that's investing in future technologies. You know, one more recent one is actual technology that takes carbon out of the atmosphere. Right, I saw um, that. And then, you know, obviously... We, you know, we're looking to to continue to invest in those technologies. And, you know, our industry's always been in an evolution. Energy has always evolved, and we know it's going to evolve in the future. We've been around for 140 years. We fully intend to be around another 140 years. But we understand that our portfolio will look different in the future than it might yeah. today. Right. Well, in fact, one of the things that's always interesting to me are people's perceptions yeah. in this space. It's like, uh, so, so the hot thing to do now, if you're going to go look at an automobile, is to get an electric car, right? right. But then people don't think about, so what's the source of electricity? Where's the electricity come from? And so much of that is coming out of fossil fuels yes. in, the, in, in the generation. Yeah. So this is a space, I think, that, uh, there's lots of education yes, to do. Exactly. Yeah. And, there, no, I, and there's a yeah, lot, lot of misinformation, more. too. Yeah, and you know, I couldn't agree more. Dave, you know, it reminds me of what your, your answer is. I read an article actually this morning in the LA Times, critical of GE uh, because GE is helping to build a coal-fired plant in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, and to your point, there are, I think, about a billion people in the world still without electric, uh, uh-huh. electricity. Yeah. They have no. They have no reliable form of electricity. It, exactly. exactly right. So these are the decisions that are being made mm-hmm. by governments and companies and others on what is the balance. 
right? Which and this nuance, Mike, yeah. that you mentioned, is hardly gets into the conversation yeah, when it's, it's a much hard, more dynamic. Exactly. So inside, <laughs> I was always curious about this, Dave. Inside Chevron, how do you talk to your own employees about this topic? Well, I mean, we just have an open and honest conversation. I mean, and they, you know, they, you know, employees in our company want to know what their future is going to be in a lower carbon environment, right? And so, but, you know, the interesting thing that we found inside our company and also research has been done within our industry is that young people actually want to come to work right. in our sector because uh, they want to be part, they want to be part of the Completely solution. agree, yes. And, uh, and so we haven't, we see people that are attracted to the industry for that reason. But again, I mean, we talk about what we're doing. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about Chevron and different from any of our peers is that we, every employee um, is incented to lower our carbon intensity. We have four different metrics that we that we uh, measure ourselves against. And our the incentive part of our compensation is tied to our ability to do that. So we're you know, we're putting in, you know, real teeth, I think, into what we're trying to do from inside the company. Yeah. When we, and, you know, we live in an inside-out world, so totally. you know, starting inside the company is the right place to do. And the first people that will call BS, if you're not living up to what you say you aspire to, will be your employee. Yeah. I think it's key. I mean, I think if you think about great companies, you know, they're built on trust, right? And But they're built on the trust of their employees first. And then they're also built on the trust of the public and the societies in which they operate. And so it has to start inside the company. And, and I think if you look at the companies that sustain the test of time, they know why they exist. They know what their purpose is. They know what they believe in. Right. Uh, they define themselves beyond Great the sector in which they reside. And their employees have a, a strong belief in the company and its purpose, and they believe they're part of the mission. And when you can line all of those things up, you create companies. It doesn't mean they don't go through ebbs and flows, but they sustain the test of time. And the ones that struggle um, and the ones that collapse are the ones that really haven't built that trust with their employees. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So we talked about employees. We talked a little bit about external. This is 2020. <laughs> and, uh, you know, politics, yes, <laughs> politics play such a huge role in business today and, 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 and certainly within discussions about energy and global climate change. What advice would you give to our communications listeners about how to manage kind of that political minefield, particularly in a presidential election year. You know, how do you survive without just throwing up your hands and saying, uncle? Well, I th you know, I, I was talking to somebody inside the company the other day, and we were trying to think how many administrations in the U.S. have we worked with over 140 years and something like 26 different yeah. administrations. And so, I mean, wow. you know, and then if you look around the globe, I mean, there are countries where we've been in operations for more than 100 years, and these are challenging places from Venezuela, where we are today, to Nigeria, to other developing parts of the world. And so I think you have to really build uh, a competency and a capability of working with different governments and, you know, and being a, a partner to the government in terms of the, the expertise you bring and in terms of extracting resources and doing it in a, in a responsible way. But, you know, we have to 
we have to work with governments of all shapes and sizes and, and ideologies. And, you know, so we, we keep that at the forefront. But we engage, you know, I mean, we engage with every administration. We, you know, share our point of view and our point of view. We will sit down with, you know, the the Trump administration will sit down with whoever represents the Democrats and is, you know, is... So do you get involved during the campaign stage trying to talk to advisors and policymakers and going to conventions and that kind of thing? Yes, we do. You have to. Yeah. You really have to. Well, I mean, you can't, if if you're not willing to engage and articulate a point of view and and talk about it, then you can't complain about the outcome. Right, (laughs) right, right. right. What's the old adage in politics? If you don't tell your story, your opponent will? Right. Um, so, so let's talk crisis for a moment. And in fact, that you know, you know, think about uh, the crux here. And probably, uh, given Gary's experience and my own, you know, we might <laughs> rename the show "Crises or Us." Uh, but uh, at Chevron, you led uh, the company through one of the most watched cases in the corporate world. That is the lawsuit that uh, Ecuador brought against uh, Chevron. Uh, right. And this is the fight over allegations of pollution that their their claim went on for decades. Went on for years, yeah. Uh, it's and, still going on. Yep. <laughs> and ultimately, the the claims uh, in the case were proved bogus. But how do you sustain a fight through many years? And what do you kind of uh, point to as kind of keys for success as you work through one of these challenges? First of all, you know, we owe it to the courage of our of the leadership of our mm-hmm. company. You know, they they had the courage to to say no to, you know, a group of unscrupulous lawyers and their supporters who really their sole aim was to take our reputation hostage and then try to ransom it back to us. And, mm-hmm. and leadership had the courage to say, we're not going to do that. We're going to stand up for our employees and we're going to stand up against this. So that's one thing. I mean, second, you know, obviously a terrific partnership with our legal team. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say third, from a communication standpoint, is we had the discipline to not overplay our hand. You know, we had access to things and information and videos and stuff that would have reputationally mm-hmm. may have helped us, but it wouldn't have helped uh, the legal case. The legal so, case. Interesting. Yeah, so we were really careful That's... not to overplay our hand. And, you know, I think that these are, you know, the arrogance of these lawyers, um, particularly their lead American lawyers, really what was ultimately their undoing. I mean, they filmed themselves talking about making judges in Ecuador fear for their lives if they didn't get behind their scheme. They filmed themselves talking about manufacturing environmental evidence because they couldn't find the contamination mm-hmm. that they wanted to. They claimed, um, yeah. Yeah, they put in place a payment scheme that, you know, the last people that would receive any payout if, if they won the lawsuit were the actual people in the Oriente whom they claimed to represent. Um, So these were not good people. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, today they've lost in every court that respects the rule of law. They've lost in Argentina. They've lost in Brazil. They've lost in the U.S. all the way up to the Supreme Court denying to hear their case. They lost in Canada. The lead American lawyer is a convicted racketeer. Um, he's sitting in his apartment in New York under house arrest for <laughs> for contempt, and uh, that's where we are. Well, you know, it, the, Mike asked the right question. I, GE had a similar fight over the Hudson River and PCBs that, that, yeah. that went on for decades, and it's really hard to sustain mm-hmm. your courage. Mm-hmm. In other words, 
you decide at the beginning it's worth a fight, mm-hmm. even if it's going to hurt your reputation a bit, because mm-hmm. ultimately it will. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the um, thing you mentioned about working with legal team and not overplaying your hand, even though it might have made you feel good, mm-hmm. but maybe wasn't good strategically. Um, what's different about being a leader in communications versus another function, and how can you you know, really work well with your peers across the C-suite? Certainly, I think the nature of our work requires those of us in communications to, to take a global view of what's happening in the, in the marketplace, um, not only within our industry, but beyond our industry. I think we tend to take an enterprise-wide view, um, and that's certainly, I think, true of, our, of the legal team as well. But, but I think we have, to, we have to appreciate, you know, what their interests are, you know, what drives their thinking and, and why they make the decisions they do. And not, you know, we're not going to try to win every single battle. We're going to, there are trade-offs that take place. You, you guys have worked inside corporations. You know, sometimes there are legal issues that trump yeah. a reputational issues. There may be uh, financial reasons or human resource or human capital reasons. And so understanding that dynamic is important. I mean, that's the one thing from an agency standpoint, I can't, you know, a lot of times agencies say, well, if the company only took our advice, they wouldn't have this you know, <laughs> problem. But the reality is it's far more complex. Right. They don't, have the, they don't have the full view that you yeah, do inside. Exactly right. And understanding how decisions get made. and That's and so important. Is important. But that said, I think also, you know, our function in companies for too long you know, was comfortable operating from the mezzanine level. Um, you know, we weren't willing to be held to the same accountability and standards that some of our peers, both in the business and functions, were. And as as a result, many communications functions have become viewed solely as cost centers uh, versus yes. va- versus value centers within their enterprises. And I think our aim is how do how do we be, be a value center because people will pay. For value, they will pay a premium if the value they believe is worth it, and uh, and that's how if you're a value center, you will continue to get the resources you need to do the work that you believe you're here to do. Yeah, it's so important, and you know it's something I always say to young people in in the profession, which is, you know, a lawyer may come to you and say, "I'm sorry, we can't say that," right? And your job is to respectfully say, "Well, why not?" Right. And what, but, yeah. what and, can and I you, say? You, you, can if, I have say? A good, if you have a good case like Ecuador, you know, no <laughs> one can ever say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we speak, you know, with respect to litigation when it's certainly when it's in our interest to do so. Right. So kind of, right. Right. But what you don't want to do in today's world is be caught in a cycle of no comment. Right. And, right. And, and, and to your point, I mean, what we often did uh, uh, when I was particularly at, at State Farm is we got into an exercise, the general counsel, Kim Bruner, where we were instructed to say, you know, what would we like to say in this given situation? Mm-hmm. Let's not just make this, That's a great you way know, to put it. Yeah. A, a dichotomy where you go one way or another. Yeah. Let's state out what we'd like to say. Yeah. And are you comfortable with that? Is there a legal reason why we shouldn't say that? Right. Because right. um, their job isn't about reputation. Ours is. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, well, you know, and I think, you know, but I think legal teams are becoming much more uh, I agree. I agree. Uh, smart and sophisticated about what what happens outside the courtroom does have an effect inside the courtroom. I mean, we've, I, I can't think of a better team to work with. And, you know, and they've brought 
me in and they brought my colleagues in to present to the to the legal function and to talk about yep. how our world is changing. And I think we always have to remember that we share the same mission. That's, Absolutely. Um, and that's yeah. the mission of the company. And, uh, you know, but things, you know, in the court of public opinion, there are no rules for introducing evidence. Right. Uh, <laughs> there are no rules of jurisdiction and those right. sorts of things. And so when we when we have that common understanding, I think it gives, you know, them a better respect for what we do and we certainly respect what they do and we can come together and and put together the best approach on behalf of, you know, in this case Chevron. And I want to I want to talk about one other function, but I also w- want to reflect on something you said, Dave, which is this, you know, understanding across the C-suite and the time you have to invest as CCOs and others. And and also, this was my impression in my short time working for an agency was the place where agencies, particularly the big ones, mm-hmm. can improve the most is understanding the dynamic that CCOs face internally, right? In other words, y- you, you mentioned, Dave, that sometimes you give really good advice and it doesn't get taken or it's, it's, it morphs into something else. But the CCO is facing a whole nother dynamic around proprietary information, you know, personnel issues, all of these other things. And the yeah. politics. And of the, the politics organ- right. of the organization, right? Right. And, and people say, well, wow, look at Boeing and how ham-handed they have been. You never know. Right. What, right. what the advice is that was provided there by the CCO or whomever. Right. Uh, it, right. It, it's um, so. Anyway, I think it's a that's real why being a you know a Monday morning quarterback, I think, is not a good is not a good practice. Yeah, exactly. But but, but it's sure easy. It's sure. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's no, right. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about marketing. You've led some really big campaigns at Chevron. I remember the We Agree campaign right. about the future of energy, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. It's stating simply that you agree with a lot of the aspirations and, and goals that people have for right. for energy in their lives and in their businesses. And you have human energy today, which I think is equally power very, of human energy, y- right? Yeah. And we just and we just launched a new campaign last week called Only Human. Mm-hmm. Oh, terrific. Terrific. So tell me how you work with marketing because sometimes those two functions in communications marketing can be at odds. Well, you know, first of all in this function, I've overseen marketing, right. so that helps. You know, I hear this debate all the time of marketing versus communications, and, and I've always viewed that as a leadership issue because if marketing and communications aren't working hand in glove, then you're sub-optimizing both functions to the detriment of your company. And so, to me, you know, I look at it more as a leadership issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, increasingly... There is a gravitational pull that's bringing them closer and closer together. You know, if yes. you're in a consumer products company, that gravitational pull may bring you more to looking like a marketing communications function. Yeah. Function. If you're in a company like mine, you know, the gravitational pull makes you look more like you're, you know, in a stakeholder using mm-hmm. marketing and all of its disciplines for better stakeholder mm-hmm. engagement right. and outreach. And so I think you have to have an understanding of that. And I do believe, again, going back to that three-dimensional chessboard of commerce and technology and geopolitics, that you know, marketing and communications together are going to be much more effective at dealing with that and navigating that dynamic than 
uh, independent of one another. Uh, but the other thing I point I would make briefly is, you know, I think a lot of times communicators are so focused on the, the perceived, if you will, battle with marketing, <laughs> yet there's all this stuff that they're ignoring. The discussion that's happening in the boardroom around issues like cybersecurity, increasingly around culture, around human capital management, around, mm -hmm. you know, ESG-related issues, around risk management. And I think the so the corporate communications function, if you will, there's all this opportunity out there that's that isn't being taken advantage of because we're so worried about who's mm -hmm. getting the, the bulk of the dollars. Yeah, exactly. Again, if you go back to my idea of moving from a cost center to a value center, you will get the resources you need to do your job. But to be a value center, you actually have to understand what the conversations that are taking taking being taken inside the boardroom yeah. or inside businesses. That's a, today. Yeah. And it's fundamentally about being strategic, right? Absolutely, but it's also about execution. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I I confess I'm going to confess here on it's Lent after all I should I, you know that <laughs> I was the priest yeah good right. for you <laughs> that I had you can confess on behalf of Mike and myself <laughs> <laughs> no that I had that disease you know it was I, I saw marketing as maybe not a colleague or not you know uh, someone to collaborate with but someone who was taken away from my budget yeah. right and and. Uh, in retrospect, that was a that was a mistake, and yeah. Dave's approach is exactly spot on. Yeah, well, that's why I, I tend to somehow frame it in around strategy that ultimately everybody should be pointed in the same direction, and therefore right. it's just a, a sort of deciphering who's going to do what, when, and to which audience and in what channel. Right, and you know there are marketing disciplines that no communications function can do without today. You know. Right. They, Every communications function now has to have a paid media expertise because you can't accomplish what you want to do through social without that. Every communications function ought to be using data and analytics to better target its stakeholders the same way Absolutely. Um, yes. you know, marketers have targeted their customers. I mean, if you think about what we try, it goes back to the digital conversation. What we've tried to do is take the best practices of the consumer product world which is this deep understanding of your consumer and what makes mm -hmm. it gets them to purchase your products with the best practices of the political world, which mm -hmm. is, you know, how do you really activate people to take action? And if we can bring those capabilities together, then that is breakthrough in our industry and breakthrough for how you manage issues. Yeah. You know, here at Boston University, you know, they, they pay Gary and I to corrupt young minds. And I know that... Uh, uh, I you, imagine there's some reverse mentoring going on. Oh, uh, yes. Serious, Com serious, completely. yes. Completely. Uh, but we know that you've been a great supporter of talent development in the industry, and I think it would be helpful to the students who, who listen into this is to have a, a sense from, from a real pro in terms of what do you see as the biggest needs in our industry relative to talent, skills, and capabilities? You know, what do we need to, to learn to get better? The first thing people have to come in with is a mindset of constant reinvention, reinvention of themselves and reinvention of our functions. I've joked, and I, I made this, I think, at a page meeting once, that if I were interviewing for the job, I have today with the skills that got me hired into this position 16 years ago, I wouldn't get the job. <laughs> right. And, you know, and, that, and that's my point of saying that we've got to 
continuously reinvent ourselves. And I, you know, I work for John Anoda, who you both know, yes. uh, you know, Brilliant. often described the Yoda of communications or PR. <laughs> you know, he once told me, he said, you know, Dave, let go of 20% of what you do each year. Um, that may be 20% that goes away or it's 20% that becomes an opportunity for somebody else. But if you do that, you'll reinvent yourself every five years. And that was a very smart and pragmatic approach. Wow. But today we don't have that luxury. We have to. And the pace is quicker than that. You know, I focused a lot of the last, last few years about getting smarter about data and analytics and predictive capabilities and, you know, what it's like to move from an analog world to a cognitive world in terms of engagement models. Um, you know, my successor, Kent Robertson, who is a tremendous leader and, and great communicator, he's really looking at how do we apply behavioral science mm -hmm. to do what we do and to continue to advance our function. So I think everybody has to really figure out, you know, where it is they're going to make their mark. I think if you look at the kinds of skills, you know, we've gone from digital producers to platform strategists, from, you know, writers and editors to storytellers and content experts, from change management consultants to organizational change experts, stakeholder monitors to, to stakeholder intelligence experts. So you can see we're trying to create different kinds of jobs and evolve, you know, existing roles to be more aligned with where the world is today. Yeah, more, more change in the last ten years than maybe in the previous hundred in yeah, our I profession. Agree, I agree, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Kind of merging those ideas about reinvention and some of the discussion we've had around uh, public affairs, politics, and and how it's it, sort of a, a big part of what a chief communications officer does. We've seen a lot of CEOs. And, and, and even big investors of late talking about purpose. Do they have the, the skills to deliver on the promise of doing good and doing well? Well, I mean, they've got to gain alignment across their enterprise. I think the biggest mistake any company can make is that, you know, a CEO on their own is able to affect transformation mm -hmm. and change. They can set the vision they can drive, you know, work to drive alignment, but they've got to get leaders across an enterprise to buy into that same vision of the future. Now, I mean, if you're in a small founder-led company, you know, they can make those, lead those changes, you know, more nimbly and, you know, and, and with greater agility than, you know, in an organization, obviously the size of a Chevron or a GE, or, you know, or something. But, but even inside those organizations, they have to really understand purpose because employees today, you know, they want to work for companies. They're going to make you live it. Yeah, and, and they <laughs> want to work for companies that they, believe, purpose, right? that they believe in what they're doing. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, I think I have all the respect in the world for the Google has become, but, you know, its employees are, they're defining what it means to don't be evil. Right. Um, so I think you part of it is, you know, really what is your purpose? It can't be too cute or trite. It's got to be substantive. It's got to align with your the strategy. Your of the capabilities. Company yeah, your yeah. Capabilities. And, you know, it's it's okay to be aspirational, but you, you have to actually show actions toward those aspirations. Um, just to say you're going to be something without taking action is what creates cynicism and cynicism from within. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, listen, Dave, this is, for our listeners, you can see why Dave is 
considered to be one of the best CCOs of our generation. And that's not a, an exaggeration. Widely respected and, and a great get for Edelman. Absolutely. And uh, so, a great treat to have you on. Yeah, and great treat to have you on. So, well, thank you, guys. Thank you, Dave. All right. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.